0: we love stories. Stories are, stories are invigorating to us. They're inspiring to us. When we take time to listen to other folks' stories, we, we see things maybe from a different perspective, and that's healthy. Jesus used storytelling to to share with us what the Father is like. Jesus used Uh, storytelling to um, share deeper truths about life with us. We love stories. Kids sit down in front of electronic screens for hours upon end and are told stories conveying social norms and pop culture ethics. We love curling up in front of a fire and reading a great book or curling up in front of our Kindle and reading that screen. The bonfire is full of stories. We gather around it every autumn to share stories with one another. There's stories unfolding all around us. But perhaps the the greatest story unfolding right now is the story of God. It's God's story. His story has been unfolding forever, from long since before you and I were here, and his story will continue on past when you and I are gone. One of the most encouraging things that anyone's ever said to me uh, during a phone, a phone conversation with a friend, he said, you know what, Eben? In 100 years, no one is ever going to remember you. <laughs> now, this may seem a little bit Debbie Downer to you. It's like, no one's going to remember me. Who will give my eulogy? But the fact is, is that it's irrelevant. Isn't that comforting to know that in a a hundred years, no one will remember you, but that the story of Jesus will live on through eternity and go on long past when we're gone. We're part of that story. We find our place in the story of God, and we we find that it's going to continue long after we're gone, but we're simply a link in the chain. There's a story he's writing, and we each have a part to play in that story, and his is a story of love, and it's a story of grace. It's a story he's telling about adventure and about risk and about boringness and mundaneness and drudgery. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to take a look at that story and how God is weaving us through the loom of grace to create something beautiful. Beautiful. We're going to look at the compelling and beautiful nature of grace and how we can absorb all that we can. We're going to journey less on forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins aspect of grace and more of the favor part of grace. You see, in the American church, we're keen on saying that grace is God's unmerited favor. But don't you find that whenever a preacher tucks with you or whenever you find yourself sitting in a chair that you find that the focus is more on the unmerited than it is on the favor. You see, because grace is less about sin avoidance and more about kingdom abundance. We're going to journey that together. You don't have to be a golf fan to empathize with the plight of Adam Scott. Adam Scott was in the British Open some years ago, and he was on fire the whole day at the tournament. He had f- four holes left, and he was four strokes up. He, c- he could have parred those last four holes in his sleep. Everybody in the whole tournament thought he was a shoe- a shoe in And the camera switches during the broadcast of the British Open, to this local workshop where there's a craftsman engraving the first place medal of the British Open. And the craftsman is sitting there, and he's engraving the name Adam Scott. Well, no one could have imagined what happened next. Through the course of the next four holes, Adam Scott just blew it. Missed putt after missed putt, wayward shots. And he had a 10-foot putt to sink in the 18th hole to go to playoffs. And he missed it. Adam Scott lost the British Open on that missed shot. And perhaps the most compelling piece of the broadcast was when the camera switched over back to the the craftsman who was working on that medal. And with a groan, you saw him (laughs) scratching out the engraving of Adam Scott's name. Many followers of Jesus think of our journey with him in the same exact way. That we'll be erased from the metal. We fear that the same is going to happen to us. That the fatal stumble or the ultimate collapse will happen. That the house of cards will all come tumbling down. Might we fall so utterly that God would erase our names. No, he won't. Jesus couldn't be more empathetic. He said, I shall give them eternal life and they will never lose it or perish throughout the ages. He also said that no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. Jesus promised a new life that can't be forfeited or terminated. (laughs) Don't you feel like that? I always feel like that. Come on. So good. I did not plan that. Deuces, fellas. Love it. Uh, okay. That's... Uh, any more requests from... <laughs> We're taking requests. Yeah, so we've crossed over from from death to life. Unlike uh, the metal engraver, Jesus has an eternal perspective on grace. He knew every step of your life before you took it. Every uh, bogey and every birdie, on good days and on bad days, he saw you. And your name, your very essence, is engraved into the palms of his hands. We're looking at Isaiah 49, 16 first off, and then we're going to journey through uh, Peter a bit. But in the coming weeks, we're going to look at how we belong to the unerasable story of God, that we carry something of an emblem of grace upon our lives. In Isaiah, the prophet writes that, See, I have engraved you for, for the Lord. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. We're told a story here. We're told that our stories are written on the hands of God into the very fabric of God's story. We're told that God's hands bear our stories upon them. It's like, it's almost a bit like Star Wars where it's like God is holding something of an eternal hologram of you in the palm of his hands. The analogy doesn't go that far because we're, seen we can be touched by God's heart but you get what I'm saying we belong to him and he's not erasing your story you may feel far from the father from the love of the father this morning but you're not the truth is is that you're not and by deeper revelation he's here this morning to touch our hearts and and heal our hearts with something of deeper grace it's not by deeper knowledge or by deeper study of the Bible on our parts, it's simply by Jesus' presence. They're not just pages in a book, but there's something of living presence that happens when we encounter something of God together. He's holding us in His hands today, and He's hugging us and reminding us that we belong to Him, that our stories are engraved, that we're inscribed in the palm of His hands. His perspective on grace is eternal. It's not limited to sin avoidance. He's inscribing his love into our hearts on the other side. And it's important to note here that the Hebrew word, the Hebrew translation for this verse doesn't say that he's inscribed your name. The Hebrew translation is more like I've I've inscribed you, the totality of you. On the palm of my hand. So, what he's not saying, God is not just saying that he has a list of names that he's got written on his hand. It's not even a collection of faces that Jesus carries. God's open, cup like palm is filled with his intimate knowledge of his people, of you. Your very essence, their fragrance, the sum, and the substance. Your name's not just scribbled onto his hands. What he's saying is that we're more than simply on the same page. He's simply saying, you and I, son or daughter, you and I have an unbreakable, seamless bond. We are at the same exclamation point of the same sentence, of the same paragraph, on the same page, of the same chapter of the same book together. Our stories are intersecting beautifully. He can't forget you. He's incapable of forgetting who you are. And this thing of grace is is that it is about the forgiveness of sins, but grace is more encompassing than that. It's more than that. It's everything in the kingdom of God. We'll learn how grace is less about sin avoidance and more about kingdom abundance. If this is true that we're held in the palm of God, we're not forgotten by Him. And because we're not forgotten, we release creative abundance everywhere we walk. We can't help but release the thing that we carry. If we're inscribed on the palm of God, then you simply walk into a room and you release creative abundance. Why? Because you carry the signature of Jesus. You carry the emblem of grace upon your life. He says, I will never forget you. How could I forget you, he asks. You have been portrayed on the very palm of my hand each time that I look at my palm hundreds of times a day. I'm refocused upon you. I cannot help but think of you. You are there always before me. He mentions the walls of Jerusalem in Isaiah. Walls are very significant to the ancient Israelites. They symbolize a permanence. You're not going anywhere. You're there in the palm of his hand. He carries you and you carry him with you. It's more than a one-time exchange. More than saying a prayer. It's an ongoing experience of deeper grace. You wear and you cannot help but wear the emblems of grace everywhere you walk. You see, an emblem is something like a family crest. It's an image that carries deep significance. It symbolizes what's happening on the inside of a family or a business. In design terms, if you spoke with a graphic designer, he or she would tell you that a logo type is different from an emblem. A logotype is the words that convey identity, and the emblem is the image that conveys the identity, or some deeper meaning. And we know the power of emblems in our society, don't we? The kids see the golden arches long before they see the printed word McDonald's. From five miles away, all of a sudden, from the deep recesses of the minivan, come cries of hunger that fill our ears or how is it that when my children were toddlers from their car seats they were able to identify that red and white bullseye as a place where many toys are located (laughs) and then start asking us if we were on target I, I get it bad joke I get it if we were on target to stop the minivan and take a peek inside When we see the emblem of a bald eagle, we're immediately reminded of the intangible sense of freedom and and hope and democracy that many feel. But an emblem is, is a striking image that captures our imagination. A logo is powerful. Words are powerful and significant. But emblems are striking images that capture our imagination and remind us of a deeper truth. The emblem signifies what the word means. It's sort of like how John says in in the first chapter of John, the word, the logos, that's why we call logos, logos, logos. They come from the Greek word logos. The word, Jesus, was made flesh. Another way to say it is that the logo became an emblem. The Word became flesh. An emblem is relational. It's a raised relief. It's cut in stone. It's sewn in thread. In many cases, an emblem is something you not only see, but something you can touch and hold and distribute. It's, It's an image that reveals a deeper lesson. Grace is something like this. We carry it with us everywhere we go. There's something of creative abundance that's released through us as we live in it. It's transformative, it's transferable, it's distinctive, and it's inexhaustible. There's always more grace to give away. Grace is not about wearing the emblem on a Christian t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It's the effervescence of your smile that you bring as you meet with friends. It's the peace that others encounter when they come into contact with you. There's something about that guy. What is it? There's something about that gal. When I meet with her, there's, there's a sense of peace in her. She's going through all of these challenges in life, but she doesn't seem to be faced. Peace that passes all understanding. You carry the emblems of grace with you wherever you walk. And it's not simply a one-time stop for a quick lunch. It's deeper than that. It's in the way we perceive ourselves. It's in the way we call out God's goodness in others. It's in the way we encourage young artists or entrepreneurs. It's in the way that we treat our spouses. It's in the way we engage with strangers. It's in the way we raise our kids. And it's in the way we bring life to our city. You're not just a sinner saved by grace. How tired are your ears of hearing that mantra? Over and over again, we hear from the American church, Oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you aren't. You are not that. I'll tell you what you are. You are treasured. You are loved. You are adored. You're called out. You're chosen. You have purpose on your life. Just a sinner saved by grace is false humility disguised as grace. There's no humility at all in coming to the end of your day and saying, "Ah, I barely made it through again. It's Cleveland after all. I'm struggling. Lord, let your grace invade the football field today as we take on the Steelers and give the Browns what they do not deserve or could not earn on their own. We're going to fight for every yard? Oh, it's a grace. Every yard is a grace at this point. We love you, Johnny Manziel. <laughs> believe me, for all the ways you believe you have failed God or others in what you do, there are infinite more ways you have made God and others smile in who you are. You say that again. In all of the ways you believe you have failed God and others by what you do, there are infinite more ways... That you bring a smile to Jesus' face simply and others' faces simply by who you are. And that's the truth. If you were to stack up your sins against the smiles you bring to Jesus, the sins would pale in comparison. That's how much He loves you and I. In grace, it's not about sin avoidance. It's about kingdom abundance. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Grace transforms entitlement. Grace His grace is beyond beautiful, and that's what we want to get at during these next few weeks together. Why don't you join me in praying? Father, we pray that we would um, continue to um, sense and be aware of your presence throughout. Not just today. Not just a quick fix, God. We're, We're after a cure. We're after a cure. And we know, Father, that you are generous and that you give and you give. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to this group of people. Will you continue to show your faithfulness to us through everyday moments where your story unfolds through us? We ask that um, some would come into relationship with you today, that you would breathe fresh on dreams and creative minds, would you awaken something in our hearts to your grace that we would walk away uh, feeling a sense of your presence and encouraged and just say something that would be relevant to where people are living today. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We worship you. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Second Peter, if you wanted to turn with me there. 2 Peter, remember this is, uh, 2 Peter 1, remember this is Peter who's writing. Peter, the one who disowns Jesus. Peter, the one who wants nothing to, says, I don't know the man. And also Peter, the one who hangs upside down on a cross at the end of his life. This is the Peter who's writing this letter. And I was just going to focus on verses 4 and 5 today, and, and we'll primarily be there, but it was just so good in context. I just wanted to read, how about we start from Genesis and go towards Revelation? <laughs> the Browns play at one. I'm sure, what, we could get to Leviticus by, just kidding, we're not going to do that. But in, in verse 2, Peter says, uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance, in abundance, in abundance, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything, every stinking thing we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Here we go. This is goodness here. Verse 4, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through these promises, you may participate or partake or receive in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see two, two, uh, two cultures are clashing there. Kingdom. Kingdom of Jesus. Heaven's, heaven's culture is, um, is colliding there. Okay. For this very reason, verse 5, make every effort... To add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self control, and to self control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness or mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Pinnacle. So good. What I wanted to get at is this everyday kind of grace, extraordinary grace. But what we need to hear is that the grace that we experienced yesterday is no good for us today. It's not sufficient for today. Yes, once and for all at the cross of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is unique. It's the first and last of its kind. But we need an ongoing experience of Jesus' grace for everyday living. For the nine to five. Grace is the overflowing favor of God and you can always count on it. You can depend on grace being available for you to draw upon as you need it. But inviting grace into our lives every day unlocks a maturity in our journey with Jesus. It unlocks it. As we realize just what it means to receive the grace of God daily, it's then we begin to see ourselves in true identity. It's so important to affirm that God's grace works well in our lives. Often we view the grace of God as a drug addict would a substance he's dependent upon. We go for our fix on Sundays and then find our way out in the world only to come back the next Sunday more addicted than ever. You may ask, well, what's so wrong with dependence upon God? I, suppo- I-, I thought I was supposed to trust in God, to depend upon him. Well, in this case, it's not God we're dependent upon, but rather a false understanding of what we've received. In 2 Peter, we're reminded that we are daily participants in the divine nature. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're daily participants, that we partake of the divine nature? Well, first, it reveals something about who God is, the character of God. And what this means is that God is active and that he's relational. He wants not just something to do with you, but everything to do with you. He's concerned with who you are and where you're headed. What Jesus is saying to us through this passage is that, hey, I want to be involved in your life. I care. I didn't just die to forgive your sins. That wasn't it. I died to write inscription upon your heart, to welcome you into family. When Jesus rose again and sat down at the right hand of the Father, he is saying, I gave you everything. You have everything you need. Everything I had, Jesus says. Everything in my substance I passed on to you when you said yes. You have it all. That's why it's so important to to guard ourselves against entitlement. Entitlement has nothing to do with grace and nothing to do with participating or partaking of the divine nature. Entitlement has nothing to do with grace because it believes that God is in its debt. Entitlement has more to do with karma than it does have to do with grace. Entitlement says that I'm going to get out what I put in. Grace doesn't say that I get out what I put in. Grace says that I get out what he put in. And what he put in is everything that he has. And everything that he is. Grace in participating in the divine nature means that everything, every single little thing is a gift that's coming down from the Father of lights. It realizes that God is not in our debt and yet at the same time he hasn't forgotten about us. Partaking of the divine nature means that our heavenly father hasn't cut us off without a penny. It's not who he is. He's generous. Partaking in the divine nature means that it, he can never be exhausted for resource. And then it's not really humility at all to say, well I just barely got through today. That doesn't sound like heart of one who really knows their identity, who really knows that they are a son or daughter, dearly loved, that the Father has lavished his love upon. There's so much hope in saying what Peter's saying here, that you possess, in verse 4, that you possess very great and precious promises, that you've grabbed hold of the promises there's so much hope in saying that. When we say that, we can face each day with confidence and trust and that the Father always comes through on his promises. He always keeps his word. He always tells the truth. He's the only one who can say always. He always tells the truth because he is the truth. The Father always makes good. He's the only one who promises us the moon and delivers. God always keeps his promises. Well, what has God promised us? I'm so glad that you ask. Let me run through a list of what God has promised us. He's promised us first and foremost never to leave us or forsake us. And again, Jesus says, I'm with you even to the end of the age. In John, he says he promised to remain in us. He promised us in Isaiah that he will keep us in perfect peace if our mind is stayed upon him. He promised that you, 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 you will do even greater things than Jesus did because Jesus went to the Father. Even greater things he promised that you would do. He also promised us that we'd have trouble in this world. He also promised us peace and right relationship with God. He promised us access into grace. He promised that we are no longer condemned. We're not viewed like that. He promised that he will teach us how to pray. And he promised us that he will help us to pray. He promised that nothing will separate you or I from the love of God. He promised that all things work together for our good. He promised to comfort me when I'm downcast. He promised that he would never lie to me. He promised that he is going to prepare a place for me. He promised to make his home inside of my heart. He promised these things daily. And he continues to make good on his promise. One after one and again and again. He's faithful to his promise. That's why the rainbows in the sky daily, the promise and power and purpose of God is ours. We possess the promise of God. You and I are wealthy indeed. So, why do I remind us that we are partakers, that we participate in the divine nature? Well, the truth is that we, as the church, have over about what sin takes away and under about what the Spirit has put in us. And the church. We've over-talked about what sin takes away and under-talked about what the Spirit has put in us. Partaking in the divine nature of Christ means that self-pity has no more room to sit on the throne of your life. You see, because self-pity operates in, in the camp of the enemy. Self-pity operates under the, the language of Complaint. or the language of entitlement. When we allow Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives, we move away from self-pity, and we begin to put others' needs in front of our own. Our words shift from complaints to encouragement. When we partake of Jesus' divine nature, we begin carrying the emblem of grace upon our lives. We, we begin to drag something of the promise to the surface. Partaking of the divine nature, active faith in Jesus attracts those promises that we just spoke of before. It doesn't initiate them. But it attracts them. God always initiates. He's always the one who initiates the promise. He's the one who, who initiates in saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. But our active faith in Jesus attracts those promises to our lives. And in verse 5, grace grows in addition. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Godliness, mutual affection. And mutual affection, love. When we begin to see that God wants every, every single part of us even the things we view as mundane or the boring parts of our days, we begin to see grace with fresh eyes. We begin to see the favor and the smile of God upon our lives. Because there are some heights that the Lord will not take you unless you learn to see him in the boring, mundane seasons of life. It's going to get boring, y'all. You're going to get up in the morning, maybe. (laughs) Come on. Maybe you'll wake up in the morning, and then you'll go to your boring job, and you'll punch the clock. And then after you punch the clock with getting away from your annoying coworkers, you'll drive home in traffic. Dang. Then you'll get home, And your wife and kids will be there. Now, I don't know what it's like for you guys. My wife and kids are amazing, but. (laughs) And then you'll solve a fight or two between your nine and six-year-old. And you're like, you got to learn to share. Stop taking his stuff. And you say it again for like the thousandth time that hour. And then you'll veg out in front of the television and you'll go to bed. And then you'll wake up the next day and you'll go to your boring job. You'll punch the clock, interact with your annoying coworkers, and then you'll punch the clock again. And you know what you'll do after that? You'll go home. To your wife and your kids. Or your husband and your kids. Or you'll go home to being alone. And you'll veg. Put some mac and cheese in the microwave. It's good stuff. And you'll tuck yourself in and you'll go to bed. But how we allow grace to... Engage with the mundane and boring stuff of life. Has everything to do with growing in that grace. Here's here's what I mean. What does it mean that Peter says add to? He says add to. That sounds a whole lot like earning. And we know that grace has nothing to do with earning favor, right? Grace has nothing to do with earning a smile or a hug from God. Grace is opposed to earning. But Dallas, Dallas Willard says that grace is not opposed to effort. If we want to know what it means to be followers of Jesus. You say, I thought all the work has been done. Finished at the cross. Well, add to, when Peter says add to, it simply means all that character means. None of us here this morning were born exceptionally kind and good people. Is that true? Please shake your heads, yes. There is not one person here who was born exceptionally kind or good. Yes, good. Character is something the Lord forms in you. Habits are the same way. We're not born with our habits. We must form them on the basis of the new life that God's creating inside of us. He said, I've made you a new creation. It means he's forming something in you. And this is where I'm going with this. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love are all the things that are practically fleshed out in the drudgery, mundane, routine things of life. The ordinary moments. Ask any 90-year-old about character checks, and he or she will tell you plenty. You see, we're not meant to live Facebook super sparkly lives. You know the 1950s world of Facebook and social media, where everybody's kids are doing well, and everyone looks like a rock star. And you get little thumbs up and blue stars and red hearts and whatever you get. We're not meant to live super sparkly lives. Are you aware of this? Please say yes again. We're called to be the common stuff. The common stuff of ordinary life exhibiting the marvel of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that I'm up here before you. If you would have talked to my friends like 12, 13 years ago, you know, the ones who were giving me drugs for free and getting me high all the time, and not to say that I'm a victim, I willingly went. I wanted to feel good. If you were to tell them that I'm sharing the love of God with a group of people, they would have laughed at you and called you foolish. There's no way. Eben, are you serious? That drug addict? Him? It's the ordinary common stuff exhibiting the extraordinary marvel of the grace of God. That the love of God could be lavished on someone like me. You see, there's no entitlement anywhere near that. I know what I deserve. As a son or daughter of God, I know what I deserve as well. I know who I am. At times in your journey with Jesus, there's going to be no bells or whistles. There's going to be no frills. It's going to get boring, y'all. You're going to come to church Sunday after Sunday and sing the same stinking songs. And you're going to sit in those chairs and get your fix. And then you're going to walk out that door hoping that it's enough to last you through the next Sunday. And that ain't grace. It's going to get boring. It's going to be the simple day in and day out, the common task. Before the miracle at Cana happened, when Jesus turned water into wine, he told the folks there to fill drums up with water. There's a little bit of dispute, but most scholars would agree that these jars, these stone jars, were anywhere from like 10 to 20 gallons each. And there were six of them. Imagine, for the sake of the story, that they were 20-gallon jars. Because that makes it better. (laughs) There were six jars that were holding 20 gallons each. And Jesus says, go fill those jars up with water. Now, maybe one of the smart workers would have gathered that, oh, we've run out of wine. And Jesus wants us to start filling up these stone jars with water. But some of the other workers were just getting water. See where I'm going with this yet? Can you imagine how many times those workers went to the riverbank or the well and scooped up water and then went back? and poured it into the collective pot. Their jar was empty. So they walked back and scooped up more water and then went back and poured it into the collective pot. And you know what they did after that? They went back and they scooped up some more water and they carried it back. The water did not turn into wine as they scooped up water from the riverbank. They weren't pouring wine out of the tap. They were pouring straight up water. And then they carried the water back and they poured it into the collective pot. Until, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, simply saying, yes, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. Back and forth, back and forth, until... Wine flowed. You're saying yes in agreement with the Spirit in times of drudgery and routine matters significantly in the context of the grace of God. And the important thing here is focusing on the adding, not the drudgery. By saying yes, carrying the water that Jesus has asked you to carry from the well to the stone jar Not knowing maybe even if he's going to perform a miracle or not. Simply by carrying the water, you attract the grace of God. And it's the adding that's difficult. Yet the tiniest detail in which I obey and you obey, the tiniest little thing that you give your yes to Jesus on, has all the omnipotent power of the grace of God behind it. If I do my duty, not for duty's sake, but because I believe that God is engineering my circumstances, he works all things, promise, works all things together for my good, then at the very point of my yes, the whole entire superb grace of God is mine through the atonement of Jesus, through his death and resurrection. When we delight ourselves in him, it becomes less like earning something and more like receiving grace. There's a huge chasm between legalism and obedience. And sometimes doing what Jesus asked requires us to say no to ourselves more. In fact, not sometimes, every time. Every yes you give to Jesus is a no to yourself. Grace is a thing that Jesus is using to heal the world. And he heals the world through restoration of broken things and broken people. And broken people and things can only experience restoration through the experience of being given grace. So that means... When we call out God's goodness in others and celebrate it, not simply identify it, but celebrate it, really honor it, we begin to experience healing on a very personal scale. Broken things and people can only experience healing through relationship. Grace is restorative, it's creative, it's life bringing, and it's healing. It's not just about forgiveness of sins, but it's all-encompassing. Why don't you join me in standing?